Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Marianne's guest is Seb Alex, who is an animal activist in Beirut, Lebanon. Seb started his animal activism career with a bang, giving talks all over Europe. But when COVID hit, he changed up his tactics and focused on online activism and on working on some amazing projects, many of which grew out of the Lebanese Vegans Animal Rights Center. I can promise you, you are going to be blown away by the activist scene in Beirut and what they are accomplishing, as well as by Seb's incredibly thoughtful approach to animal rights. Yeah, I I love this interview. It was really interesting. I really learned a lot, but I am so jealous of this animal rights center that they have. I mean, I won't do any spoilers because you should listen to find out about it, but we all need to have a building. We, We all need a building just changes everything. I remember being at the Animal Rights Center building in Berkeley and it was cool. You know, it, it's true. We get very used to this sort of online way of existing and there is something very special and powerful about a physical space. That is cool. I'm excited about our, our listeners yeah. all hearing this interview. I encourage everybody to uh, go to the website and look at this building because it's really lovely. I loved my conversation with with Seb and I continued it on the Flock bonus segment, which is really, really good. And as always, if you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to that bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast goes up. You can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can't afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And if you're a Flock member, please also join us for our first Flock Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on, you guessed it, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. Should we call them Flock First Friday Zoom calls instead of Flock Friday Zoom calls? Got it. Okay. Flock First Friday Zoom calls. (laughs) Or what about First Friday Flock Zoom calls? Maybe that is a little better. Maybe that, yeah. yeah. We can mix it up. We can do it differently every week. We're really daring. We're taking a lot of chances here. (laughs) Just striving for clarity. They are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern or 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. And during those calls, we focus on how to be better activists and how to take care of ourselves. And we invite back former podcast guests to chat with you in a in an intimate environment. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and if you're in the Flock, you can also set up one-on-one meetings with me too. So if you want to do that, email jen at jen at ourhenhouse.org. And I'll look forward to talking about your activism, your veganism, your change making and all that fun stuff. So uh, we are excited to tell you about some some new happenings in our personal lives and as they relate to veganism, that is not just old, boring, personal lives stuff. Uh, We are moving to Rochester, New York. So I know we've mentioned in the past that we had visited it, that we had been thinking about it. And if you've been paying attention, you know that we've also been in search of like a net zero community. And it's been a, a very much of a roller coaster sort of experience because we've been trying very hard to like live our ethics as as much as we possibly could and it's been challenging because so many of the net zero communities we found were either not in areas we wanted to be in or there just wasn't a vegan ethic so there was like 
you know, and there chicken. Were, it's not like there were gazillions of them. No, there's just a, a very small handful, if that. Just a few. The eco-villages uh, tend to like have chickens and yeah. Yeah. That's a problem. And and then we also were thinking of of kind of starting something ourselves. And mm-hmm. the, the the level of bandwidth just became a little too much. We really wanted to right. buy something from people who were doing this, knowing sort of what they were doing. That didn't happen. This road took us to many different areas. We we were also were studying the, the climate change map, which you can get on the New York Times. So if you're curious, just Google New York Times climate change map and you'll be able to just find it and put in your address or where, or where you're thinking of moving. And so we were looking for an area of the country that had relatively good projections for long-term climate issues. And we wound up looking at Rochester, ultimately understanding that since like from a scalable perspective, we can't all move to net zero communities. And also we can't all build homes from scratch in a energy optimized way. So we decided to find homes that can be retrofitted to be net zero or at least energy independent. So we are moving close by to each other, houses near each other. And my house closed this past weekend. I haven't moved yet. I'm, I'm, I need to get all of that work done, the solar and the geothermal and the insulation and the new windows. But Rochester is such a cool place. I consider us climate refugees. I've enjoyed spending time up there. Uh, it's nice to like be able to be really in the middle of the city in walking distance to a ton of vegan or vegan-friendly restaurants and gay bars and a gay cafe even, but also be right near all of this beautiful green space and just incredible parks. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, So this past weekend when I was there, actually a vegan butcher shop opened. It's called Grass Fed, which is such a great name. And I was able to go there for the opening and it was super crowded. It was difficult to like, you had to wait in line for a really long time and just tons of people there. Amazing, just sliced meat, but all vegan, obviously. And just they're in it for the animals. So that is so cool. And I, I mean, if that's not a sign, then the rainbows all over the highway on the drive there were. We also were able to eat at the vegan restaurant Red Fern and the vegan donut shop Misfits and some other places like uh, that have so many vegan options. Like, oh, and Vula's is, is Greek food, has a ton of vegan options. Owl House had Chinese food at Lynn's Garden, which was probably my favorite because I just love Chinese food and there hasn't been good Chinese food in my life for a while. So we're probably moving end of July and then you're probably moving end of August. I'm looking forward to, you know, keeping people posted about the activist scene, the vegan scene, and it'll be really fun to be exploring a new place. Yeah, I am too. I I think like so many people in the country, my life has been a bit on hold, as has yours for the past year. And, you know, I am very grateful for how safely I landed during COVID, but yeah, it's time to move on. And, you know, it's kind of weird. Like we just had this plan of of building something. I don't know why, because neither of us are exactly smart about that stuff. And, you know, maybe nearby houses. And then it, it occurred to both of us, as you said, that the big project here in taking the country closer to energy, uh, you know, reducing energy use for houses, which is one of the most important projects there is for climate, uh, because, you know, all these houses, uh, there's a lot of them, and they use a lot of energy. So getting to net zero 
or what did you call it? Energy independence, which, you know, they're, they're all similar concepts. I mean, they just mean trying to get your house to produce as much energy as it uses, either, whether through geothermal, which is very big up in Rochester, or solar. The project is, is super, super important. And and so retrofitting might, you know, might be just as exciting and, and worthy a project as building. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm intimidated. I, I don't know anything about Rochester, except I was blown away when I went there and I realized how cute it was. And most everybody I know from the city, this is just, you know, by the city, I of course mean New York City. I mentioned I'm moving to Rochester and their response is generally, why? Uh, which is not enthusiastic because it's always how far it is. How far is it? And they always mean from Times Square. <laughs> That's where you measure everything from. But like, I, I don't know. I didn't know anything about it. It's super cute. As you just pointed out, got lots of vegan stuff. Every, almost every house in the neighborhood I'm buying in has a Black Lives Matter flag or, or sign. So it feels good. Ah, I'm scared, but it feels good. Good to yeah. have a new chapter. Like, I, I really just want to get in and get settled before any new variants shut us down again. Oh, Ugh. yeah. Always bringing in the pessimistic point of view. That is kind of my role in life. Pessimism. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm excited too. I, I could stand like not moving again. I've moved, I think, like at least once, sometimes twice a year for like the last 10 years and I'm ready to not move again. So, you know, I'm pretty excited about that part of it too. We'll keep you posted. So switching gears, last week I was able to speak to Animal Outlook, formerly known as Compassion Over Killing, for one of their staff meetings, which was really fun. And I was it was Pride, so they had me talk about some of the overlaps, both personally and politically, between the animal rights and the LGBTQ movements. And I, I'm not going to get into too many details here, just because I've spoken about it many times, both on the podcast and and. Uh, at colleges and universities and in various talks. But when I was putting together uh, a a little notes form to to focus my thoughts, I was a little taken aback by the fact that as I was comparing my current notes to previous notes that I and we have given for former talks over the last 10 or 15 years, so much has changed since some of those Google Docs were created originally. And I, I was... Uh, I was moved by that a little bit. Like, you know, there are shifts and it's good to remember that there are shifts. And so you mean shifts for LGBTQ issues or shifts for animals? Well, I think both to some extent, we were at a different point with both of them. So like one example is that I kept talking about the fight for, I called it gay marriage, the fight for gay marriage in like a lot of the old Google Docs. And it was, of course, before federal uh, recognition existed for marriage equality. And so that was cool because now suddenly it's so normal. And, you know, beyond that, there were some differences within the current victories that I was pointing to regarding animal rights as well. So that was interesting. And it was funny because I was comparing uh, some of the tactics between the two movements. They're both very relatively new movements, which is so you can look at the tactics. And one of the things I, I compared in some of the older notes for former talks was the kind of theatrical in your face tactics that was very successful with ACT UP, which of course was, you know, the 
biggest and most successful campaign that made the biggest changes with the AIDS awareness movement. And though I I came into the animal rights movement by way of the AIDS awareness movement, it wasn't for me, it wasn't ACT UP. It was, I was a different uh, sort of theatrical campaigning organization, but ACT UP of course was super successful. And there was a lot of sort of in your face campaign tactics and like protests and sit-ins and kiss-ins and, and it, it was, ultimately uh very useful because there was a lot of shifting with it and i compared it to PETA, you know and some of those in your face tactics but it's funny because nowadays one would more likely compare it to dxe direct action everywhere and as i was thinking about this i was thinking about how similar act up is to dxe um in fact like by complete coincidence on on my drive up to rochester a few days after this talk for animal outlook I was listening to one of the recent Ezra Klein podcast episodes, and he was interviewing Sarah Schulman, who's a great LGBTQ activist and um, very involved with the ACT UP scene. And I just have to very strongly recommend that anybody listening to this right now, when you're done with this interview, with this episode, because Seb Alex is, you're going to want to hear him, but you stop at that point and listen to Sarah Schulman on the Ezra Klein podcast because she talked about activism so profoundly and what worked and what didn't. And I just kept listening from two different perspectives. One was because I am very interested in AIDS awareness, but the second is because I was kind of thinking of it, comparing it to what's working and what isn't within animal activism. So I strongly recommend it. Oh, and one thing that Sarah Schulman said on the Ezra Klein podcast is, you you have to have these very far left tactics and these very far left activists to sort of have the momentum of the center. And it's funny because when I think about that in terms of animal rights, I obviously go back to DXE and help so many people just like brush off DXE's tactics completely, but not not understanding the the pivotal role that it plays in in the movement as a whole. I often hear people like acting as if DXE doesn't even exist or just ignoring it um, or feeling uncomfortable about it. I'm not sure what's going on there. Even Ezra Klein. I mean, of course, Ezra Klein is not in, ensconced in the animal rights movement. He's very supportive, but he has a lot of other things that he's working on. But he uh, compared PETA tactics to the, the tactics of ACT UP, uh, and he didn't mention DXE. I mean, if people aren't that familiar with DXE, you can go back to my to my interview with Nico Stubler uh, a few weeks ago. And, you know, that gives some some insight. But it, they really did strike me as incredibly similar. Of course, the AIDS awareness movement and, and almost every other movement that we know of always has the advantage of, of having its victims able to to talk and and be part of the activism. Uh, ACT UP was not a huge, let's mobilize uh, our constituency kind of group. It was a, a bunch of very, they weren't really radical when you think about it. What they wanted wasn't terribly radical. They wanted medical care and, and research done on this disease that was killing people. Mm-hmm. Not a very radical goal, as ours is not a very radical goal. We just want animals not to be tortured and killed seems mild, but but both seen as very radical in the mainstream and using, yeah, kind of similar theatrical mm-hmm. law-breaking 
uh, tactics, taking risks, and and having a serious, serious community. That was something that struck me in that interview with Sarah Schulman that I also listened to. But she didn't say anything about animals, which was disappointing. But well, we, as her kind did, as her kind did. He brought so it that in. was good because I kept I kept pausing it and being like, "This is exactly like animal rights activism," and then pushing play. And then finally, Ezra Klein is like, this is exactly like animal rights activism. I'm like, yes, Ezra, that was what the point I was trying to make this whole time. Yeah, if only Ezra would listen to you more often. Anyway, the point I the point I was trying to make was that there was a community, like the, the ACT UP activists were a seriously bonded community. Uh, and I think that, that you could say the same of DXE activists by and large. So yeah, yeah really really important time in this movement. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in a very mainstream way, but there's also really a lot going on in the uh, more radical approach. It's good to keep all of this in mind. It was good to go back to all those old notes of mine because it just showed me how quickly things can shift because when you're in it, you don't feel like it's a quick shift, but then you look back and it is, it is a quick shift. Uh, like I said, both the animal protection movement and the LGBTQ movement are both very relatively new movements. So let's keep that in mind. Speaking of which, I mean, when I like I, I'm thinking about when I mentioned that marriage equality was still a fight at that point. Now it exists. Obviously, the LGBTQ movement has still has a far way to go in certain areas, especially the protection of trans people. But speaking of which, uh, remember when Canada Goose used to sell fur <laughs> well they they do still but only okay. till next year yeah right pretty- it was, that that's been a, a recent shift that we wanted to chat about because let's celebrate those small victories along the way it is exciting the canada goose has has agreed to cut fur out of their uh clothing and it's exciting for a few reasons and then you know i've also heard some people saying let's not overstate what's happening here so let's talk about it a little bit for me one of the reasons it's exciting i mean obviously it's always good when you hear anybody stopping buying products that are that are the subject of torture and death that's a good thing but canada goose has been a target like a the way ringling used to be a target i mean there have been this has been a serious target of the animal rights movement so it really feels like a victory um, and those can be very satisfying and energizing for activists. And the nays, well, not exactly naysaying. Uh, I think everybody's pleased that they're going to stop using fur, which I, I honestly never thought they would. But there, there's some people saying, well, they still use down. Like, what is the big deal here? But it, it is both a big deal and that is a good point. I mean, I think PETA has said they're now going to switch their tactics. They've agreed to stop their fur protests. Not that PETA was the only organization organizing fur protests. It's really been a target of a number of groups. And, and they're going to start focusing on down. And yeah, animal abuse continues. And should a company be lauded when it just stops one type of animal abuse? It's 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 the same problem we face in everything. Animal abuse is just so embedded in our culture that it's it's hard to see anything as a victory. But I think we have to stop and smell the roses once in a while and be excited mm-hmm. about the fact. Uh, I, I'm just excited at the thought that sooner or later I won't have to see those those horrifying coyote uh, fur jackets, which you know cost an absolute fortune and it's making somebody rich. So mm-hmm. that pleases me. Yes, agreed. Agreed. None of these like things that seem so easy or so obvious from the outside are actually that way on the inside. This was after a lot of campaigning, a lot of work. Oh my God. So. Millions of protests. Well, maybe not yeah. millions, but really a, a lot. lot of protests. 
And it also opens the door for, like you were saying, it opens the door for new forms of activism now, new campaigns. So yay. I mean, let's celebrate it. And speaking of celebrating, let's celebrate the work of our guest today because this is a, a, a powerful interview and I'd like to get to it. Born and raised in Lebanon, Seb Alex was well on his way to a career in the corporate world as an architect when he decided to do an about face and dedicate all his time to animal rights advocacy. After giving talks all over Europe and beyond during COVID, he turned his attention to increasing his social media presence, writing a free ebook and working with the Lebanese vegans in establishing an animal rights center and social hub in the heart of Beirut and working on, among other things, providing food relief after last year's horrific explosion. Seb will be joining Marianne right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to Our Hen House, Seb. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a delight to have you. I've been watching you on social media for a long time, and I'm really excited to talk to you because it just seems like you have both an interesting and strong approach to activism and a really thoughtful approach to what's going on with animals. And I want to get into all of that. And you do a lot of different things. And I thought I might start with some of the things that I first saw. And it, it first came to my attention, the work of Lebanese vegans at the time of the that horrific explosion in Beirut, and which I saw looking, <laughs> looking at, at the materials for this interview was in 2020. And it seems like it was so much longer ago, but that's what the pandemic has done to us. And yeah. But I saw at the time that the work of Lebanese vegans was really seemed extraordinary in providing food relief to all of the people who were out of their homes because of that. And I think most people recall the event, but can you remind us a little bit about it and tell us about the response that Lebanese vegans mounted? Of course. So um, it all started in the first week of August. There was a massive explosion in the port of Beirut based on a lot of studies, the biggest non-nuclear explosion ever. Uh, in the past hundreds of years that left 300,000 people homeless within six seconds, more than 200 people died. And obviously the whole city of Beirut was destroyed four kilometers. And at the time I actually, when the explosion happened, I had just finished packing my bag to head to the airport and go to Lebanon. And I knew that I cannot do anything until I get there, but I also knew that, well, until I'm there, I can at least start something. So I immediately contacted the activists who I know in Lebanon from Lebanese vegans, and I told them, let's let's start doing something together to help everyone involved and also the animals who were injured. And uh, that's what we started doing. So 
for the months of August and September, we distributed food to more than 2,500 families in form of ready meals or plant-based food boxes with information about nutrition, plant-based nutrition. And we also took care of the vet bills of a lot of cats, uh, mostly who were injured from the explosion. And we tried to focus as much as we could at the time on refugees and also workers who come from countries like uh, people of color, basically, because these countries that they come from, they have a lot of issues when once they get to Lebanon, they don't get enough support. And we knew a lot of Lebanese NGOs are helping Lebanese people. We're also going to help Lebanese people, but we're also going to make sure we reach other, let's say, populations that are not going to get enough support that we know for sure. So that's what we did. And from then, a lot has changed. Obviously, a lot of people joined us and it went really great. A lot of vegan restaurants that got destroyed from the explosion, they actually joined us by cooking amazing meals so that we can distribute as well. It's really a beautiful story. And I just wonder how you relate Obviously, except for, of course, you were helping animals. This was helping people. It wasn't specifically animals. And yet it all does seem like part of the same project. Is that how it felt to you? Was it just a way to to communicate to people about veganism or did it all just kind of go together? It's quite a sensitive moment to talk about veganism when there, there were actually still people missing. And I don't I don't mean that in a way that the animals don't matter. Obviously, there's nothing in the world that would make the plight of the animals less important. Of course, that's always important. But when we are trying to be effective, then we have to choose the time and moment where we can talk about it and the other person is going to be receptive to the message. For example, just to give a very, very simple example, I met up with a a guy around my age because I had his contact from a friend who told me his family is doing very bad financially and they were on the first street that separates the, basically right behind the highway and the highway is what separates the explosion site from the city of Beirut. So in his street alone, there were 14 people who passed away. Um, So I went to meet with him to give him a box of food And I told him, like, I wish I could do more for you. And he told me, eight months ago, I lost my job because of the financial crisis in Lebanon. Two months ago, my car got stolen and this explosion killed my father. And I'm just there looking at him thinking, like, what what can I do for this man other than this box of plant-based food? You know, that's literally like, I wish I could do more. But it would be absolutely ridiculous to think that that is the moment where I could say something about other animals and veganism, not because the other animals are not worth it, but because that person is, it's not the right moment to talk about it. So what we did is inside the boxes, we put leaflets with information about plant-based nutrition and some resources. And if they are going to be open to it, then that leaflet will do the job it can do. But we also made sure that they know that this is help that is arriving to them on behalf of the animal rights community. And that is already like a way for them to realize, to to identify with us, to realize that, yeah, we are here for justice. We are here out of compassion as well and to help as many people and animals as we can. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And it shows the the importance of institutionalizing what we do. The fact that Lebanese vegans already existed 
like allowed you to make your point without having to make it. <laughs> yeah, it was just, exactly. It was, you were there and you stepped up and people kind of probably knew who you were, but you didn't have to, you didn't have to give them a lecture no. at these horrible moments in their lives because you already existed. It, it just shows the value of infrastructure, I think. So yeah. Lebanese vegans had existed for a while at that point, but also at around the same time on a much more positive note. I also found out about the Lebanese vegan social hub, which yeah. I'm so jealous of. Like the minute <laughs> I saw it, I thought, why can't we have that? So tell, tell everybody about it so they can be jealous too. All right. So uh, as you said, Lebanese vegans already existed for a while. At the time, it had already been a, a bit more than two years that Lebanese vegans were running workshops and events in Lebanon. So the father of Lebanese vegans, who also happens to be the owner of, uh, well, one of the owners of a private hospital in Lebanon, he told me that he has this property in Beirut that we can use as a like base camp for, because, you know, I was buying like 250 kilos of grains and rice and bringing it to, I had to put it somewhere so that we can separate into bags and I put the bags in card boxes and then distribute the card boxes. So he told me we can use this property, this area that we have. And so we started using this uh, property that's very like strategically in a perfect place. We used to bring all the food there, separate into boxes, put the leaflets in the boxes and then send it out to distribute from there. And eventually at the end, he said, you know, like my family would be fine if we make something out of this property. So we decided to make the world's first animal rights and vegan support center. And what we did was we raised, we, we did a fundraiser and we renovated the whole building and we opened the world's first animal rights and vegan support center that has a free vegan cafe. So people can leave a donation if they wish, but they don't have to. We do screenings of documentaries and lectures there, of course, always for free. We do animal rights campaigns, for example, with the billboards in Lebanon, thanks to the, the center that we built. We distribute food to the homeless and to those in need every single Thursday and also close when we have enough post donations. And we also have Lebanon's first fully vegan shop inside with lower prices on each product than any other shop in Lebanon to make veganism as accessible as possible because we're not in it for the profit. We just want to make sure people can afford these products if they wish to buy it. Obviously, it was a long process and we're still working on it. It's far from being perfect, but that was the outcome from, from the explosion, to be honest. That's how it all started. Yeah, that's an extraordinary story. I mean, I assume the pandemic has really put a... a a halt on some of your activities there. How has that gone? And are you starting to emerge from it? I'm not sure exactly what's happening in Lebanon vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic at, at the yeah, moment. Yeah, it was, it was getting bad. And then right when it started kind of getting better, the explosion happened. So what happened during, during the explosion was the hospitals were filled. Like there were people getting stitches like on the on the, like when you walk in the desk where people greet you, you know, like the information desk, there's pictures of people getting operated everywhere. I know someone who had to drive an hour away from Beirut to take uh, his kids to a hospital because all the other hospitals were full. So you can imagine when all of this was happening, nobody was like taking care of social distancing. No one even knew what was happening in the first place. The first yeah. few hours was a mess. So cases started rising during the next couple of weeks, of course, 
in the beginning of the year, January and February and in March, it was extremely bad uh, for such a small country. I myself actually lost my father to the virus as well. Um, so I'm I'm so sorry, love. I'm yeah, so sorry. It's, you know, it's if, there's not much to say. He was actually vegan as well, healthy, no pre-existing conditions or anything. So I share it just so people know. If you're vegan, it doesn't mean you're bulletproof. Uh, my father was an example of it, unfortunately. Right now it's getting better. And because of it's the fact that it's getting better, we actually just had another small event a couple of weeks ago uh, where a Lebanese Canadian athlete gave a small lecture and we screened a documentary. And whenever we do the events, we invite all the local businesses to come and sell their vegan products as well because we have a huge space in front of the property. So it's getting better, but obviously we have to see how the condition is and the rules and and the regulations regarding the pandemic so we so that we don't cause any trouble uh, to anyone yeah of course and i it sounds like you're going you're really just starting because you haven't been able to fully start yet but i'm just wondering like i said i'm so jealous of this and it just seems like it would make a huge difference for activists to have a home like this to the extent that you have been able to function have you found that of course i mean to to think like the amount of times where I've thought, why doesn't this exist in every single country with an animal rights community? Like almost every other social justice movement, they have their their spaces. You know, they have that at least one space where they come, they hang out, they share ideas, they do events. But I haven't seen this anywhere else. And and I thought, I mean, of of course, I've heard that there's one in San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken, connected to DXC. I might be wrong about this, but I was told no, about this. No, no, I think that's right. In Berkeley, I yeah. think it is, right next yes. to San Francisco. Yes, yeah. in Berkeley. But from what I was told, it's not really the same idea. Our idea is to provide a space. So we actually have other animal rights groups who come and use uh, use the space, like not Lebanese vegans, but for example, the Animal Safe Movement. They come and they use the space for their events as well. So it's basically to provide a space for any activism group to come and use it and, and make the most out of it to, to make the world a better place as much as we can. And to have a hub where vegans can come and hang out and meet other vegans, I think it's very important. And if you want to be a, a strong community, these places are a perfect ground for it. Yeah, no, I I, I continue to be very jealous of it. Uh, I would love that so much. So I guess one of the equivalent things that we have, but it's different, are, are the sanctuaries. You know, people do meet at sanctuaries, but sanctuaries are by necess- necessity not in the middle of cities. They just can't be as effective as that. But I have that same sense when I go to a sanctuary that, you know, I'm in this little island of sanity with yeah. some other sane people. <laughs> it's, it's just such a relief sometimes. Yes. So you also, aside from your work with Lebanese vegans, you do a lot of activist work on your own as a sort of independent activist. I'm not sure where you begin and, and, and they leave off, but I know that social media is a huge part of this work. That's probably how I became aware of all of this. So can you describe your social media work and what you do, what your goals are? And also we might as well take the moment now to tell people where they can find all of your 
different channels? I was doing much more street activism, but then I also started doing university and school lectures, which was, from my experience, the most effective thing I had done. So in 2019, I did around 45 lectures in universities and schools around Europe. And uh, in 2020, I had around 65 planned. I started in the first day of March, I did 10, and then the pandemic started. So obviously everything got canceled. And since then I've been thinking, okay, I can't do the lectures. So what can I do now to, to make up for it? And I've been trying to concentrate as much as I can at, in content creation. So for example, I've been trying to upload many more videos on YouTube than I used to before. So my YouTube is basically the same as any other platform I'm on. Seb Alex on YouTube, Seb.Alex on Instagram and sebalix269 on Twitter, but tw I don't use Twitter that much. It's usually just reposting the videos that I'm posting on YouTube to drive traffic. And I'm really trying to think, okay, this is the situation. I can't do anything about it. So might as well make the most out of it. So that is what I'm trying to concentrate on the most at the moment. I actually also uh, last year in April started writing an ebook. I finished it. It's actually ready. It's about basically it's about animal rights and logical fallacies. So it's called When Animal Rights uh, Meet Logic. And the idea is to help animal rights activists understand in what way our logical fallacies shape our relation to other animals. So for example, when we justify what we do to other animals by appealing to nature, that's a logical fallacy. Because I just thought, you know, we can try to learn all the facts in order to have these discussions and prove people wrong. But it's much easier to point out the logical fallacy and make the person realize they are using a logical fallacy than to actually argue about facts. Because if you mention a study, they're going to mention another study and then you're going to spend hours talking about studies. So that ebook, I finished it, but then I wanted to make it as accessible as possible. And it's going to be published uh, for free, of course, in 19 languages. I'm just waiting for the last two languages to finish. All the others are ready. So that's another thing I've been working on that is going to be helpful through social media, of course, because that's I'll, I'll be putting it on my website, sebalex.org. And that's it. Basically, Instagram and YouTube are, are the biggest platforms I use. And then any other thing like the ebook would be throughout my website. There's a lot to unpack there. You're doing a lot of different things. But let's start or let's get back a little bit to when you go on social media and you do these videos, who do you feel you're reaching and how do you frame your messaging in order to get in, in order to enter into people's minds and let them allow themselves to listen to you? What are your techniques? All right. So it's it actually, that, that's a really good question because for each platform it's quite different. For it, It's not only who I'm reaching, but more specific things as well. For example, when I check on Instagram, my analytics, all the information of, of the page that I have, it says that 75% of my followers are women, 25% are men. And then I check on YouTube and it says 80% are men, 20% are women. So each platform has a different public or, or let's say a specific um, population of people who are following it. And I also do these polls every now and then where I ask people like, what is the percentage of my followers who are vegan? And then I check, okay, based on that, 
should my content be about how to go vegan or if you are vegan, how to do activism or, I mean, not how to do activism because I don't have the, all the answers, but motivational things to make people realize the importance of activism. So through Instagram, that's what I try to concentrate the most on because I know most of my followers are already vegan. So I want to share uh, tips and information about activism, things that I learn myself and I find valuable. I want other people to know. So it's not really about me teaching anyone anything, but more of a me growing with them. So whatever I learned that I realized, oh, this is good that I know, let me share it with everyone else. So when I do that, I also make a video for YouTube where I share that. So I use those things for YouTube. And then I also make other another type of content for YouTube where I check what news there are from the vegan world, let's say. Something specific that happened. I make a quick video about it. I put it out there so that people are aware of what's happening because I realize sometimes, you know, as a moment, we tend to concentrate a lot on things that make us feel good, which in my opinion could be out of our desperation because we are so upset with what's happening for animals. But when we only concentrate on those positive things, it's not always good because you're not concentrating on the negative things. And I mean, realistically negative, not because you're you're a negative person, let's say. And when you're not concentrating on the negative, you're, gonna, you're not going to organize as well as you should. And just to give an example, if let's say KFC came up with a vegan burger, we would see a lot of vegans all over social media talking about how great it is and how we are winning because KFC made a vegan burger. But if during the same week, China built the biggest factory farms for pigs that are gonna house 800,000 pigs at a time, but no one is talking about it because it's not a good news, well, I don't think that's that's good. I think we should share the bad news, even if we don't have the the direct solution for it. But we should know about it because somehow someone is going to come up with a good idea. And this is not to say, obviously, I'm just giving this example because it, it's something that popped up in my mind. There's, It doesn't have to be China. Obviously, it can be something anywhere. For example, I can easily give an example of the US. For example, there was this dairy company that shut down, I think it was two years ago, one of the biggest dairy companies that was um, claiming that like they're out of money. Then we were celebrating it. But at the same time, Factually speaking, the consumption of dairy products is on a rise in the United States. Only the consumption of liquid milk, dairy milk, is going down, but butter, cheese, and other dairy products is going up. So I use my YouTube channel to share these things because I want I want us to fight this fight as difficult as it is by by staying realistic and motivated not motivated and not aware of the difficult obstacles that we have in front of us because we're ignoring them. So I have some friends actually, even from Lebanon, who tell me like, I love your content, but man, your YouTube depresses me so much sometimes. <laughs> and I tell yeah. them like, I don't like making these videos. I don't like the fact that these things are happening, but we have to talk about it, you know? And obviously it makes me sad because I can't come up with a solution either. You know, I don't have all the answers in the world. And I think I'll put this out there. Maybe another activist will come up with a, with a great idea or some plan, or it would motivate them to even fight harder. So 
I think that would be the best way to describe the difference between my Instagram and my YouTube. Mm -hmm. This is a really interesting point that you're making about about, which I think underlies all of the work that we do, that it's so bad that it's hard to know about it. And yeah. we worry about shutting people down because they just don't want to know and putting them into more denial. And yet, and yet it's happening. How can we ignore it? And also, I, I think I saw recently on one of your videos that uh, you were talking about social media and mental health, even mm -hmm. aside from all of the bad news just the, you know, all of all of the problems with social media, and you live on social media, at least for the moment, like all of the negativity, all of the hostility. And I, I struggle with it so much and have really probably moved too far away from social media, at least for the moment. So what's your advice to people on how to, like psychological advice on how to deal with this, on how to deal with the fact that it's so bad that we don't want to know it and nobody else wants to know it. And also that there's just so much hostility. Do you have diets? Do you have like a certain amount of time that you allow yourself? Do you balance it with positives? Mm. Uh, what's your approach? Or do you just... <laughs> Or do yeah. you just live very depressed all the time, like <laughs> I do, <laughs> just, just live in misery? <laughs> <laughs> so the way I do it is the following. I do not have a certain period of time for which I use my phone or, and things like that. I use it excessively. I use it too much, definitely too much. What I have done since January for my mental health, and I think everyone, okay, so before I get into it, I want to say one thing, no matter what happens, who you are, what you're dealing with, how much activism you do or you do not do, your mental health comes first. I don't care what the world is going through. Even if the world is burning, your mental health comes first. That's, that's how I see things because I have seen, I have been on the worst side and I talk about this very openly to normalize it. I have personally been on suicide watch almost three years ago now. In August, it will be three years. And after being there, I made my boundaries very clear. My mental health comes first. And I only say this because I want people to feel like, okay, this, this can happen to anyone. You know, and, and by only having these conversations, will people be more careful about mental health and self-care? So if, for example, following certain pages is ruining your mood in a way that is affecting your mental health, you should reconsider if you actually want to follow the pages. So what I do, for example, is I have unfolded a lot of pages because I was getting exposed to their content without me consenting to it. Because when you follow someone and then you open your Instagram, let's say, immediately you're going to get their posts because that's the whole point. So what I do now is I decide when I'm going to go on these pages and check their content. And so that's my boundary. So if I know, for example, a certain page posts graphic footage, I want to follow the page. I want them to receive the engagement so that more and more people see the, their content. But that's affecting my, um, let's say, my, my mental health. What I would do is I would unfollow the page. But then when I do feel good, I go on the page and I interact with their content. So that's one thing that I think is very important because, and you know, people might get upset that you're unfollowing them. But for example, what I did at the time is I made a few stories. I said, hey, everyone, just so you know, I'm going to be doing this. Please don't take it personally. At the end of the day, it's nothing but a follow. It's a number on social media. It doesn't define friendships. It doesn't define appreciation or anything, you know. 
people should understand that your mental health comes first. Now, separately from this, I also really encourage everyone to find what it is that helps them with their mental health. And over there, decide a specific period of time that they can dedicate to this practice, whether it's a hobby or yoga or meditation, or for me, for example, it's doing ice baths every single day or two days or three days or week or month. Do that thing. And I'm again, sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. Doing doing what? Ice baths. So I said ice and, baths. Yeah. I didn't even know what you said because it sounds so bizarre <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. yeah, I've, I've been doing it. I, I discovered it. I had no idea it helps with mental health. It was more of a challenge. And then within a few days, it changed me so much that I got obsessed with it. I actually did it around an hour and a half ago, actually. I was doing the coldest one I have ever done. And it's just... Oh my it's, gosh, I've never I, I heard of that. I could speak about this for hours because I'm so obsessed with it. Um, so, <laughs> I'm not but, even but remotely tempted, me. though. Though Exactly. I mean, I grew up in Lebanon. I cannot stand the cold. So imagine how much ice baths have helped me that I literally buy 40 kilos of ice and fill a bucket of trash that I have at home with water and put the ice and sit inside. That's how much ice baths have helped my mental health that I go that far for it. Wow. So that's my practice for my mental health. And that's where I find my peace and I feel like refreshed. For someone else, it could be running, cycling, meditation, yoga, walking in nature, go out with your friends. If you don't respect your own practices that give you the mental health support that you need to be an activist, you're going to burn out. And, and, and to, again, to normalize this for people to know how common this is, the, the friend I was with earlier while I was doing the ice bath, he has suffered from a burnout because of not taking care of his mental health for more than two and a half years now. And it really bothers him because he wants to be active again, but he's just not being, he's just not able to come out of it. So please take burnout seriously. I mean, we are all human beings and we have emotions and our emotions are valid. And what we're fighting for is something very difficult. We literally try to fight for other beings, basic moral rights who are being slaughtered to death. That is not something easy to take on the human side, like that's going to have a mental toll on you, no matter how hard you think you are. So please take care of yourself and definitely set your boundaries, check what it is that helps you and make sure that no matter how important activism is, you're not going to be able to do activism long-term if you don't take care of your mental health first. Yeah, that is so true. And I think especially true right now, because everybody's behavior is now shifting back to quote unquote normal. And we've been through a trauma, like the entire world has been through a trauma and and changed our behavior. And now is a good time to think about how to re-enter some of the things you did before, but maybe in maybe in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you a question, because this is one of the things I find most difficult to understand and difficult to to deal with. And one of the things that really affects all of our mental health. And that's, you know, explaining the disconnect between most people's emotional reaction to animals. The fact that most people in our lives care, seem to care about animals, seem love animals, you know, would never do a horrible thing to an animal. And yet their behavior 
is completely in tune with the most horrible aspects of the industry. It's supporting that industry. Yeah. How do you, ex- can you explain that to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to say fortunately and unfortunately, I can give a very clear example why people are like that. It all comes down to conditioning and the society that we grew up in. And the reason why I say unfortunately is because of a personal example that I can share. I'm not happy about this, but there's absolutely nothing I could change about it, given the fact that it's based on something I could not control. So I grew up in Lebanon, in Middle East, and the first time I saw two men kissing was when I was 25 years old and living in Spain. Okay. Obviously, that's not something I'm against. (laughs) But when I first saw it, I was shocked. I was shocked and I realized how foreign that was to me. And when I realized how foreign it was to me, I felt uncomfortable because this was something new to me. I mean, I knew that it it happens. It's not something I'm against. Yet still, it was difficult for my brain to grasp what I was witnessing. And I, like, I just mean like literally... To like a, like a couple walking down the street who were saying goodbye and that they, they kissed. That's that's all that mm-hmm. it was, you know. It wasn't um, a passionate uh, embrace. No, nothing. Yeah. Just like yeah, just saying yeah. goodbye and kissing. That was it. Like just down the street in the middle of the day. So in that moment, I realized how much my society conditioning had put a negative a reaction that should be triggered from seeing that because I could feel that negativity wanting to arise, but because logically in my head, that's not something bad. The negativity couldn't arise. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like society wanted me to react negatively, but mentally I was already in a place where of course I'm not going to react negatively because this isn't something bad, but That just shows how much, even if you are convinced with something, the amount of society conditioning that we have is always going to fight your thoughts and beliefs. So even if someone loves animals, the society conditioning that they have is going to fight their love by trying to convince them that it's okay. You can love animals and kill them and eat them as well. You can defend dogs and kill cows. It doesn't justify just the same way what I was feeling isn't justified. And I wish to live in a world where no one has ever has have to realize that, whether it's about other humans, other animals, in any way, based on species, race, gender, religion, whatever. These things shouldn't exist, but we have to face the fact that this is a society we live in. It's a species society. And when you grow up your whole life in that species society, that is going to have that impact on you. So I had, just to give you an example, how disconnected people are. Two days ago, a childhood friend of mine from Lebanon reached out to me and sent me a message, like a link of Seaspiracy on Netflix. He was like, you should check this out. And I was like, wow, like I actually watched it the first day it came out, but I didn't know you were interested. And he was like, you should do something like this. And I was like, what do you mean you should? You should make a documentary about the animal exploitation industry. And that's what he called it, the animal exploitation industry. This guy is nowhere near being vegan. But somehow he thinks that I should do that because he knows that's something good. So it's like, and I was thinking like, how weird is it for him to not even be vegan? And 
tell me like, Sam, you have to do this. You have to do something like this because it's powerful. Because he obviously sees a value in those documentaries. He sees something positive and he wants his friend to do that something positive because it makes the world a better place for other animals. Yet he's yeah, not that, vegan. It, it kind of brings up uh, the related issue of, of personal responsibility. And I think we're seeing this discussed a lot more in the environmental context because environmentalists are just starting sort of to be aware that that animal agriculture is an environmental disaster. But there's very much this focus on, well, we need institutional change. You know, it's not a matter of I should go vegan because, you know, let's face it, me going vegan is not going to change the world. But people kind of rely on that to just to say there's no personal responsibility. It's purely an institutional responsibility. Do you see that coming up a lot? I unfortunately do. And I definitely don't agree with it because even if... So so what I try to do is I always... If I have any thoughts or ideas, I try to put it to a test of logical consistency. For example, if this was the case and it's all about institutions, then that means no one has to go vegan as long as the institutions change. But the problem is, as long as there's a demand for animal-based foods, which there will be if people don't go vegan, there will always be a supply. Just the same way that drugs in a lot of countries are illegal, but because there is a demand, there's gonna be a supply. No matter what it is that we can imagine that we have banned, as long as there's a demand, there's going to be a supply. Another thing is, and this is why I, I said I always want to put my thoughts and ideas in a logical consistency test, is, for example, if I know that a certain country has uh, an issue of systemic racism, would I then say, we don't have to stop people from being racist, we just have to change the institution? No. I would say we have to work on both <laughs> because no one should be racist, just the same way no one should be speciesist. Obviously, the institution plays a massive role, but how are we going to fight for big changes if no one in the population is even doing the change in their daily lives? Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I intend to use that. I'm <laughs> just letting you know I'm going to steal that from you. Of course, of course. <laughs> What about the plant-based meats and the cell-based meat? Do you think we're on the edge of, of massive change when it comes to animals? So I am not a huge fan of the cell-based meat just because of the whole idea. I think it's ridiculous that we have to go that far for people not to kill animals. And I also know that it will still have, it's still gonna be unhealthy. But if that's what's gonna take for people to stop killing animals, then I'm fine with it. So I'm not against it. I just wish we didn't have to go that far. Right, yeah. When it comes to plant-based meats, I think another reason why I don't like cell-based is because we already have a perfectly tasting, like similar taste, plant-based meat. So why do we even have to do the cell ones? But some people want it that way, let them have it that way as long as it's not harming other animals. When it comes to plant-based meats, I think there's definitely a huge change in the market. Actually, I just filmed a video that might be, yeah, it will be out by the time this episode is out. So you can see it on my YouTube channel. It's the Cargill CEO who was talking about this issue. And he was saying that within the next, I think, couple of decades, a huge 
percentage of the, let's say, meat-based or animal-based or similar to animal-based foods is actually going to be plant-based. So even they are working now towards like getting products by using corn protein because they say uh, it's easy to work with and it doesn't have a flavor and it's good quality protein. So Cargill, which happens to be one of the biggest animal slaughtering companies in the world, is actually concentrating on coming up with plant-based products. I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think that's a good sign, not a good thing, because I don't like Cargill. It's actually nominated the worst company in the world because of the amount of scandals that they've had. But the fact that they're going so far to make these statements and say, okay, we think we should work on plant-based products because that seems to be a huge part of the future, I think it's something positive. What about for Lebanon itself? I feel like Lebanese food is already very vegan friendly. Yes. Uh, Middle Eastern food is just so, it's such a gift to the world. Do you feel like, (laughs) do you feel like that makes any difference in people's attitudes that their, their diet isn't necessarily completely full of animals, that there are so many traditional dishes that are already vegan? Definitely, because the thing is, obviously, as you said, Lebanese food and Middle Eastern food in general is very vegan-friendly. A lot of them are fully plant-based, and a lot of them have a plant-based version, and that version doesn't exist because of veganism. It just exists as a separate recipe. So, for example, there's they call it... It's like when they take grape leaves and they stuff it with rice and veggies... That recipe exists as a plant-based version and as a meat-based version. Yeah. Not because of veganism. It's just always been that way. So people are aware that, yeah, of course they can be easily vegan in Lebanon because all the food in Lebanon can be easily veganized. Other than that, Lebanon itself doesn't actually have a meat industry. We import all the meat, which means because of the financial crisis right now, the demand and consumption of meat has drastically dropped because no one can afford it. One of the first things that happened when the financial crisis started is the Lebanese army making a statement saying that they will no longer be serving meat to the soldiers because they can't even afford it, which obviously is a good thing. But unfortunately, what is still happening is the government, with the help of European Union, is encouraging farmers to to farm chicken, which is a problem that is rising in a lot of Middle Eastern and Southeast Asian countries. They're switching from meat, like uh, cow meat to chicken meat. And that is a massive problem because you kill many, many more individuals to get the same amount that you would get if you had killed a cow. Obviously, it doesn't mean that they should stay with cow. They should just not kill animals. But, you know, that that's how it is in Lebanon. The, the government and the European Union are having all these like subsidies and programs to help people farm chickens, unfortunately. But at the same time, it is extremely easy for people in Lebanon to eat and survive on a plant-based diet and also the cheapest option. Yeah, chickens always seem to, they're always the victim. I mean, on the climate argument too, like obviously eating plant-based is much better than eating chicken because eating chicken is better for the climate than eating beef. That's what people tend to lean towards. Those, The chickens are, I, I hope we find out someday that God is a chicken and we're all in serious trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? And why not? 
Well, I could talk to you all day, Seb, but we're going to have to cut it short because you're a really interesting guy. And fortunately, people who who agree with me can now go on your YouTube channel if they haven't before and and see a lot what um see a lot of what you have to say. Very thoughtful, and I've loved hearing about what's going on in Lebanon and talking to you today. Thanks so much for doing it. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from drovers.com and it's really just basically good news, but it's also nice to look at the industry's take on this good news. And the industry's take is that it's not so good news. Supreme Court rejects Meat Institute's petition to review Proposition 12. And this is really this relates to the North American Meat Institute's uh, petition to get its case reviewed. Uh, and this is one of two cases that's going on right now, trying to get rid of Prop 12 uh, in California on the grounds that it's unfair to out-of-state producers to make them follow California rules in while they're selling in California. According to this article, Prop 12, set to go into effect on January 1st, 2022, will impose animal housing standards that reach far outside the state's borders to farms across the country, driving up costs for both pork producers and consumers. That's from the National Pork Producers Council comment on this. And just think about that. We'll impose animal housing standards that reach far outside the state's borders. Like, that's to sell food in California. They just keep wanting to, like, it's a choice. They don't have to sell food in California if they don't want to. And apparently the Supreme Court agrees because the Supreme Court decided not to hear this case, which uh, they had already lost. So that was their only chance of um, of getting a different decision if the Supreme Court would review it. And as I mentioned, uh, it's, it's also being challenged in a separate lawsuit from the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation. That's currently pending in the Ninth Circuit. So we'll see what happens there. And according to uh, Julia Juliana Potts, uh, who's the Meat Institute president and CEO, Prop 12 hurts the family on a budget by causing higher prices for pork, veal, and eggs and unfairly punishes livestock producers outside of California by forcing them to spend millions just to access California markets. Like this whole argument, they think it sounds good, but I just think it sounds so stupid. They're not being forced to do anything. Anyway, this is excellent, excellent news. Hopefully the other case will go the same way and and hopefully that will be the end of this and Prop 12 will finally go into, into play next January. All right, from Animal Ag Watch by Hannah Thompson Weeman on the Meeting Place site. UN Food Systems Summit, making meat less, quote, masculine. This is just a weird one, but it's useful because it tells us a lot about this UN Food Systems Summit, which is coming up later in this year. And it's being convened by the UN Secretary General as part of the Decade of Action to Achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. 
So that's good news, hopefully, that the UN is going to start looking at ways that uh, that different countries can can make things more uh, sustainable around their food system, which you know what that's got to mean. According to Hannah, earlier this year, the Animal Agriculture Alliance took the opportunity to contribute to the FSS by convening an independent dialogue event titled U.S. Animal Agriculture as a Solution to Food Systems Challenges. Oh, I bet they did. I bet they did. And uh, they, she does say there have been a couple of um, successful uh, outcomes, which is disturbing. But as she, then she goes on to say, quote, Unfortunately, despite our attempts to engage within the FSS process, many of its outputs thus far are concerning for animal agriculture. And she talks about the various action tracks. And while some of these propositions, quote, recognize the potential for livestock to positively contribute to the planet, uh-oh, others call for a, quote, global transition away from industrialized animal production or make references to the, quote, true cost of food, unquote, by which, and then she has in parens, presumably interpreting that, that comment, increasing food prices to account for environmental impacts. Well, just imagine that. <laughs> like, what the hell is wrong with that? Like, we all have to live in the environment. If you ruin it, you you sh- you broke it. You you bought it. All right. So, according to her, the latest round of game-changing propositions contains a pretty remarkable suggestion. Uh, and uh, the solution calls for a UN-supported concerted campaign to dissociate meat and masculinity including using mass media, social media, and influencers like celebrity chefs to attack the relationship between meat-eating and stereotypically male traits and positively relate consumption of plant foods with these traits. And according to, to Hannah's little comment on this project, which sounds like a really good idea, but this is what Hannah has to say. No, seriously, this is a real thing. I can't figure out what she means here. She's horrified by it, but is she horrified because... She doesn't think that meat and masculinity are associated because that's like something that almost everybody knows. I mean, it just is. Like, I don't know anybody who's denying that. Or does she think that it's it's a really horrible idea? Does she accept that they're associated and it's a really horrible idea to try to dissociate them? I, I really don't know, but I think it's great news. All right, so, so a couple of good things in the news of late. So finally, uh, this is from a favorite commentator on Beef.com from the Beef Daily column, Amanda Radke. Colorado's PAUSE Act is paused. Time to fight Oregon's IP13. And as I reported last week, the sad news is that uh, Colorado Supreme Court ruled that um, the PAUSE Act, which was this initiative in Colorado that would have gone before the voters was uh, was wrongly written in that it covered more than one subject, which is verboten for uh, ballot initiatives, uh, even though it had passed a muster from the uh, relevant agency. But the Supreme Court got rid of it, and they are thrilled. I'm very, very disappointed. Like, why, what's so horrible about letting people vote on these things? But in Oregon, so far... So far, the uh, the proposed initiative, which is not the it, it's not identical to the one in, in Colorado, it's still pending. And according to Amanda, it's time to shift our focus to Oregon, where a similar initiative petition called the Abuse, Neglect, and Assault Exemption Modification and Improvement Act would have a devastating impact on Oregonian livestock producers. And she ain't kidding. 
it would. Um, what it what it basically does is it moves it just removes the exemptions from cruelty law. It's not just animal agriculture; it's all of the exemptions for hunting and fishing. Or well, there's a whole list of them. But it just basically says no, you can't uh, you can't cause animals to suffer. Or you can't kill them. Well, that's not exact language. Uh, I don't have the exact language of the law, but that's basically what it says. So according to Marianne Cooper, who's the pres vice president um, of public policy at the Oregon Farm Bureau, IP13, which is the number of the initiative, I like that 13, I don't know, I think it's going to be unlucky for the industry, is an initiative petition that would classify artificial insemination and other practices as sexual assault of an animal, as they indeed are. That was me inter including that, if you didn't guess that. Ban the slaughter of animals, yes indeed, and pretty much eliminate every other exclusion from the animal crime statutes that our members rely on for their livestock operations. Actually, yeah. Put simply, this petition is the biggest threat to the livestock industry we have seen in decades. I would say it's probably the biggest uh, threat that they've ever seen. I mean, if, it if they can make it happen. She goes on to say, IP13 criminalizes animal management by targeting the majority of exemptions from the animal crime statutes that ensure that the laws are not applied more broadly than intended. Okay. My intention is obviously different from Marianne's. What can I say? My intention is that all animals should be protected from horrific cruelty. Anyway, for example, she goes on to say, abuse statutes criminalize the act of people causing injury or death to animals and rely on exemptions to make sure that things like dehorning, branding, castration, and slaughtering activities are still allowed even though they technically do cause injury or death, and in the case of slaughtering uh, death, to the animals. Uh, technically, they cause injury, castration, branding, okay. See what happens with this. Uh, God, I, you know, I just hope it survives. I don't see how it possibly could, but you know, people are doing amazing things these days, and good for these for these uh, for these folks in Oregon. Uh, this is crazy, crazy stuff. Because who looking at this, who doesn't know anything about the horrors of the livestock industry, wouldn't wouldn't say, "Well, yeah, that's a good idea. No animal should be treated cruelly." Can I have a hamburger now? Uh, and that's it for this week's rising anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, you can support us by joining the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year, or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review wherever you listen to podcasts or on Apple Podcasts, or you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. That's me. And to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Jocelyn Martinez for her work doing research and for Eric Montgomery of Podcast Haven for his work editing. Thanks to Lori Johnston of Two Trick Pony for her graphic design services. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you are a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook page on Tuesday for your bonus content. Thanks so much for tuning in and for changing the world for animals.